Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And, of course, most of you are probably in fellowship, exercising the faith rest drill all the way here this evening, so we don't need a lengthy time for uh, confession. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you brought us here safely this evening. We pray that you would take us home just as safely. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together to study your word, to be refreshed by the eternal truth of your word as God the Holy Spirit teaches us, guides us, and and locks it into our memory so that he can use it later on for application in our lives. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word, that we would be encouraged and strengthened by the doctrines that we study this evening, and that we will have greater insight into how to apply these things into our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis Genesis 13. Genesis chapter 13, and we are looking at this episode where there is strife between Abraham's herdsmen, all of his employees, and Lot's employees. And the point that the text makes here is found in verse 6. Now, the land was not able to support them. And that is a key phrase to unlock the application, the interpretation and application of this passage. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God had made a specific promise to Abram that this land would go to Abram and his descendants. And so Abram's test at this point in the last part of chapter 12, chapter 13, is related to that particular promise. Is Abraham going to trust God that he's going to give him the land, or is Abram going to rely upon his own strength, his own resources, in order to bring this about? Now, this is all part of arrogance in the soul. One of the greatest problems, the greatest enemy that we have in the spiritual life is just our own sin nature. For those of you who have been around a while, remember the old, Pog- the old uh, uh, cartoon strip, Pogo. Pogo was famous because of one statement he made. We have met the enemy, and he is us. And uh, those of you who are young, just, you know, that's, just forget that. But <clears throat> that's the problem is we've got this internal <clears throat> enemy of our spiritual life, and it's our own sin nature. And the Scripture says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And that applies to all of us. And when we get out of fellowship and stay out of fellowship, that sin nature can just wreak all kinds of havoc. And the basic orientation of the sin nature is arrogance. And the basic orientation of arrogance is defined as a self-reliance over against a God dependency. Always remember that. It's not a self-reliance in the sense of self-confidence or something of that nature. It is a self-reliance instead of a God dependency. And as soon as we're out of fellowship, as soon as you hit some problem, some adversity, prosperity, whatever the situation may be, and you start relying upon yourself to handle the situation instead of depending upon God using the ten stress busters, As soon as that happens, you are ready to create all kinds of problems because the sin nature is in control. Now, Abram has learned that lesson because he went down to Egypt, tried to solve the problem there, thought he could could leave, and it was getting out of the geographical will of God. Now, just one caveat on this concept of the geographical will of God. As far as I've been able to discern, going through the Scriptures, the only time anybody knows for sure that God has a geographical will for them in the Scriptures is because God told them He had a geographical will for their life. Think about it. God told Abram to go to the land. When God told, when, when Jonah was outside of the geographical will of God, it is because God told him 
that he wanted him to be in Nineveh. When uh, Paul got outside of the geographical will of God, it's because God had specifically, objectively revealed to him where he wanted him. So, Abram is outside or was outside the geographical will of God. Then he went through some uh, divine discipline, but even at that same time that he was going through divine discipline, God was increasing his material prosperity. And the point I emphasized was just because you are doing well materially, financially, successful in your business, doesn't mean you're in fellowship, doesn't mean that God is blessing you because you're so spiritually astute. God just may be setting you up for the next test, which may include within it uh, some divine discipline. So don't fall into the the trap of superficial theology that we have so often today, which wants to define the blessing of God in terms of material prosperity. We saw that Abram returned to the land. Just to review the, the structure here, Abram returns to the land along with Lot. Now, Lot wasn't mentioned in the first uh, in, the, in the first episode, in chapter 12. Lot's not mentioned at all. Neither are all the servants. In fact, if you just had chapter 12, you would think that it was just a family situation that, that uh, Abram and Sarah just loaded up the donkeys and, or camels and headed south to Egypt. And we find out that, no, it's a huge, it's an enormous entourage of servants and slaves. And Lot's going with all of his servants and slaves. And these are... Wealthy individuals, extremely wealthy, with large amounts of uh, possessions and, and slaves and servants. So it's not a simple thing to move, something that uh, I've just recently been reminded of. And uh, one thing you can pray for this week is Jim Myers. He just moved. He bought a house just outside of Kiev. It's about a 20-minute 30-minute drive from where he's been living. It's going to give them a lot more space, opportunities to do a lot of things. They moved last weekend. I got a first email from him this morning, and he said that uh, he was back in at the office. He said that phone service hadn't been hooked up yet. They, they were still trying to get a uh, direct line into, key, into Kiev. But the first night they were in the house, the furnace broke. Now, those of you all who are here in warm Houston... Don't understand the dynamics here. It was minus 25 Fahrenheit. Furnace broke. He said by the time he got a jerry-rig to, to work, the temperature in the house was 45. And at that point, your water pipes are freezing. And he said three days later, they're still just getting a trickle out of their pipes. So you can pray for Jim. He doesn't know where anything is. And I told him, I said, just trust me, in three months you still won't know where anything is. Maybe in six months you'll start finding things that you lost when you moved to, to Kiev, but that's the way moving is. So Abram and Lot and all the entourage are moving first down to Egypt and now back to Canaan. And as they get back to Canaan, with all of the financial growth, material growth that they've picked up down in Egypt, the land cannot support them. And the key word I pointed out last time is follow this word land all the way through these Abrahamic narratives because that's what God is promising Abraham. That's the core of his uh, faith rest drill operation, the land, the seed, the blessing, those three elements in the Abrahamic covenant. So there is strife between Abraham and Lot, and I pointed out that this is a really a play on words from Moses because later on this word that's translated strife becomes a technical word for the contention between disobedient Israel and God. And so there is sort of a foreshadowing there. In fact, there's a tremendous foreshadowing throughout these two chapters of what takes place later in the history of Israel. In fact, let me go through some points on that just to let you uh, give you an idea of what's taking place. This just points out the brilliance of the writer of Scripture. This is incredible literature. And when you study the original language and you get into the details of the text, you realize that there's a lot going on at different levels. Now, that is not to say there are different levels of interpretation. It is just saying that like any good writer, 
There are elements of foreshadowing that are taking place. There are certain literary devices that are being used in order to emphasize and highlight certain things within the text. We use a bold-faced type or an italics type or a or an underline to bring out certain things. They didn't have that, so they did it through the use of of literary devices. They did it through the use of syntax. And so often these kinds of things are lost in translation. Well, what we see here is that there's a famine in the land, and there was a famine in the land back in chapter 12, and that is something that happens several times in the book of Genesis. It happens again in chapter 43, and again in chapter 47. So God uses the problem of, of a combination of meteorology and agriculture to bring a test on the early patriarchs. Abram, as we've studied, went down to Egypt. In the same way, when there's a famine at the end of the book, what happens? Israel, Jacob, and his family go where? They go down to Egypt. While, there, while he was in Egypt, Abram was, being afraid of being, was afraid of being killed. While the Jews were in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh decreed, decreed the slaughter of the infants. In Abram's episode, Sarah was taken into uh, Pharaoh's palace, and this foreshadows the fact that the Jews, at the time of the Exodus, are taken into Pharaoh's palace as slaves. Another parallelism is that in the circumstances surrounding Abram in chapter 12 take place because of his disobedience to God, his failure to trust God. In the same way, Israel is taken to Egypt at the end of Genesis because uh, Jacob's sons are not obeying God and remaining separate. The strange thing that happens at the end of Genesis is that his sons begin to marry Canaanite women. They get attracted to Canaanite women, which indicates they'll be assimilated back into the culture, whereas God called them to be separate. So one reason God sends this famine at the end of Genesis is to force Jacob and his sons out out of the land, down into Egypt, where God will protect them from themselves. And while they're in Egypt, it's a form of divine discipline in order to protect them because the Egyptians were tremendously prejudiced racially, ethnically, against anybody else. And so they would not have anything to do with anyone else. There was no such thing as intermarriage with other races in Egypt. And they would isolate other ethnic groups into their own uh, we would use the word ghettos, and that's what happens. The Jews are put into a, an isolated area, a ghetto, up in Goshen, and where they won't have any, any real uh, social involvement or interaction with, with the Jews. But it protects them, and in a sense it puts them in a protective womb so that after about 300 years, they grow from just 170 indivi- or, excuse me, from 70 individuals to about 2 million individuals. Well, another element of foreshadowing is that the Pharaoh gives gifts to Abram in chapter 12, verse 16, as even though Abram has messed up, Abram's lied to him, Abram has created uh, various problems within the harem, Pharaoh gives him gifts and sends him on his way. In a similar way, the Jews, as they exit Egypt, take spoils from the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. The Lord uh, heard the cry uh, as he's watching Abram. He hears, he sees the problem there, and he uh, brought, a, brought problems onto Pharaoh's house in order to cause the deliverance. And in the same way, the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed Jews in Exodus and brings a plague on Pharaoh's house to cause them to be uh, let go. Uh, Pharaoh calls in Abram to discuss the problem in chapter 12, verse 18. Pharaoh calls in Moses to discuss the problem in Exodus. The Pharaoh tells Abram to take his wife and to leave. In the same way, 
Pharaoh finally gets disgusted with Moses and the Jews and tells Moses to take the Jews and to leave in Exodus chapter 12. Abram leaves and he goes to the southern part of the land in the Negev. And the same way the Jews, when they depart, after they go to Mount Sinai, they also go to the Negev and have the episode of Kadesh Barnea. So these are just some ways in which the in which Moses, as he writes, weaves in certain elements that foreshadow what takes place in Exodus. And this is done because, remember, he's writing to the Jews just as they're going to go into the land. So all of the, all the events in Exodus are fresh on their mind. It's not so fresh on our mind because we haven't looked at Exodus in a while. But they were just a generation removed, and they knew everything that had happened. So as they're reading Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, they don't miss the parallels. And it brings to their mind the importance of trusting God exclusively in the midst of trials. Now, the test, the presenting problem that we have here is this strife, this division that's taking place, this family strife that happens with between Lot and Lot's servants and Abram's servants. And so Abram's got a problem. He's got to solve this problem, and he handles it, as we saw last time, by offering uh, the land, the choice of the land you, to, to Lot. He can have the choicest land, and Lot's response in verse 10 is that he lifts his eyes, and that immediately brings to my mind the uh, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is the essence of sin, given in 1 John uh, chapter 2. And he lifts his eyes, and he's totally focused on superficial realities. He does not take into account morality. And the problem that he will face is the direct result of the fact that he ignores the spiritual realities that underlie the situation in the cities of the plain. He lifted his eyes, saw all the plain of Jordan. And I want you to notice something in verse 10. I mean, we just run past this very quickly, but I want you to notice what the description is. He lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Now, if you've never been over to Israel, I've never been there, but I've seen a lot of pictures of the uh, area around the Dead Sea, north of the Dead Sea, and in the wilderness there where later on David will hide in the caves. This is not an area that you would describe as being well watered. But at this time, it was well watered. This indicates that there was a, a much different climate at this particular time than you had later on. Uh, many of the creationists who have studied this uh, made an effort of this uh, from a meteorological aspect, point out that you had some real, uh, uh, very strong, very extreme climate shifts in the book of Genesis. You have these incredible famines that take place three times in the book of Genesis. Not that they're not under God's control, because they are, but you have three of these extreme famines. You don't see that in the rest of the Old Testament. So what's happening meteorologically? And the conclusion is, the hypothesis is, that after the extreme disruption of the Noahic flood, you have a collapse of, of uh, whatever it was, some sort of upper atmosphere canopy where you had a stable uh, weather system prior to the flood. Now you have a collapse of this system. You have the development of polar caps. Uh, that take place, and you have a development of ice ages that occur rather rapidly. You have cycles of, of global warming and global freezing taking place. And it's funny, nobody had any fluoro hydrofluorocarbons, nobody's running an internal combustion engine, and you have these n typical natural cycles that take place. And right now, of course, the, the um, liberals are all up in arms, over global warming, and they want to force policy and everything else over global warming. And it's just a rejection of history and a rejection of science. Basically, a thousand years ago, the earth was much warmer than it is right now. There was a, about 300 years ago, there was a period where it was much colder than it was. So it, it was warmer around 900, 1000 A.D., then it got gradually cooler 
until the period around 1600, 1700, and it was much colder than it is now, and it's been gradually warming up ever since then. But when they had the warm weather at, back at the turn of the last millennium, the Vikings were going forth in their ships, and they discovered a continent they called Greenland, not because it was white and covered with ice, but because it was green, and it was much warmer then, and the polar caps were much smaller. And it wasn't because they were burning too much gasoline in the, those uh, in d- diesel engines that they had on their boats. So we just have to have a little more perspective, and it's the Word of God that gives us this kind of perspective. But as, as Lot looks out, he sees that this whole area is well watered, and, he said, and it goes on to say, skip the parenthesis, says, like the garden of the Lord, it looks like paradise. This is going to be a great place to go. It looks like the Garden of Eden. This is where I can go and everything's going to be great. There's going to be prosperity. There won't be any problems. So like so many people, Lot is looking at circumstances and finances and prosperity to be the solution to problems and the source of happiness. But the text goes on to say that the area is not only well watered and it's like paradise, it's like the Garden of Eden, but it's like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Now, we don't know where Zoar is, but it's down towards the south, obviously, towards the Negev, and down on towards Egypt. Once again, if you look at pictures of the northern Sinai Peninsula, you wouldn't say this was an area that's well watered, that's green, that's lush. It's brown, it's dry, it's desert. So again, this is pointing out that there was a tremendous a difference in the topography and the meteorology at that time in uh, Earth's history. And, of course, if we take the Bible to be true and we understand that there's this worldwide cataclysm at, uh, at the time of Noah, and if we were to take that seriously in our study of science, then it perhaps would give us a more accurate understanding of geologic history and, at, and what's going on atmospherically and meteorologically. See, the Bible isn't just restricted to teaching truths about salvation and the spiritual life. There are elements throughout the Scripture that give us the information we need to accurately interpret everything around us, from history to geology to biology to law, science, uh, philosophy, ethics, the Bible gives us that framework. It addresses every area of intellection known to man. Now, of course, the point of all this is a spiritual failure on the part of Lot, but the spiritual success of Abram. Lot focuses on the superficial. He focuses on the empirical, and he fails to take into account that the most vital causative element in history is spiritual. It's not economic law. It's not, uh, it's not physics. It's not science. It is, there is an underlying causative feature that relates to spiritual reality, and this is what moves history. When I was in grad school, we, I had to uh, uh, take a course on historiography. And historiography is the philosophy of history. Every, every discipline has a philosophy. You may not realize that, but you can take the course on the philosophy of science. You can get a Ph.D. in philosophy of science, philosophy of economics, philosophy of, of history, philosophy of literature. Everything comes out of a philosophy. And philosophy, that philosophical orientation then uh, pretty much sets the agenda of the discipline. So to truly understand any discipline, you have to understand the philosophical underpinnings. What are the uh, implications of this metaphysically, that is, in terms of what exists beyond the uh, the, uh, observable physics? Uh, What are the implications of this epistemologically? Now, here's a good word. I remember when I first started at Dallas Seminary, uh, one of my professors used to say the basic crisis that the that our culture is in is an epistemological crisis. And I would just go home and think, epistemology, what a great word, just to feel that flow off your tongue. Epistemology, what in the world does this mean that we're in an epistemological crisis? 
And it is a profound statement. Epistemology is the study of how you know what you know. So if somebody makes a statement that we can't really know truth, or that in a postmodern world every culture has their own truth and each culture is equally valid, each truth, area of truth is equally valid, you say, well, how do you know that? Somebody comes along and says that there are no absolutes. Well, how do you know that? That's a, isn't that a contradiction? Is that an absolute statement? There are no absolutes. So how do you know? How do you know that's true? How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know anything is true? How do you know that when you say this is right or this is wrong, how do you know that it is right or wrong? I mean, to may even make a value judgment such as uh, this is right, this is wrong, or you'll find some uh, atheist who says that war is wrong. Well, how do you, on what basis do you have, a, can you make this value judgment? How do you know? And when you get into a culture as we have that is uh, has drifted into mysticism and subjectivism, you just know. It's supposedly this intuitive insight that you have that you just know. Does everybody know that? I mean, have you ever noticed the arrogance of some people who just say, well, don't you know that it's just wrong? And they can't, they can't give you a rational answer. Why? Because mysticism, this is one of the hardest things about trying to interact with a mystic. Mysticism rejects logic and reason as a valid means to knowledge. Think about that. If, you talk, if you're talking to a charismatic and you try to explain an exegetically based argument for the cessation of the gift of tongues, they won't listen to you. Why? Because you're using reason and they're just going to have an experience with the Holy Ghost. And this is what, and you find this in Baptist churches. You find in a lot of evangelical churches. There's a latent uh, mysticism there. How do you know? Well, the Holy Spirit taught me. Or the one I really love is when you talk to people and they say, "Well, we're not really going to plan a lot ahead of time because we need to leave room for uh, God, the Holy Spirit, to be spontaneous." I, I, so God, the Holy Spirit, can't plan ahead. God, the Holy Spirit, isn't a God of order. And discipline, he just sort of going to wait to the last minute and pop something into your head so that you can do it in a haphazard manner. But often this is just an excuse for laziness. Anyhow, the basic crisis is epistemological, and that's the foundation in our, in our culture, and that's why there's such an assault right now on the integrity of Scripture. And that's what's at the root of the Da Vinci Code and so many other things. Is there are all these other Gospels. Why these Gospels? How did you come to pick these Gospels? How do you know this is the Word of God and that's not the Word of God? See, all these questions boil down to how do you know? How do you ultimately know something is true? And Abram has learned that true knowledge is based upon the Word of God and includes a spiritual dimension, and Lot hasn't learned that. And the key is, in verse 13, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And, of course, that's foreshadowing to what's going to take place when we get over into chapter uh, 17 and uh, 18 and the episode with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. So what? now that we understand the dynamics here of what's happened, I want to step back. And I want to look at what is going on in Abram's development spiritually. We saw that he's got a failure with his test in chapter 12, but he's passing this test. What is happening here? What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, what we see in this is that Abram is now successfully utilizing three stress busters or three problem-solving devices and we have to understand how they work together. And this is true for all of us. So I just want to take some time and look at the foundation here, which is the faith rest drill. And the principle that's on the screen is that the faith rest drill focuses first on the trustworthiness of God to do what he promised. The ultimate focus when we are utilizing the faith rest drill isn't on the promise per se. It is on the God who gave the promise. The question in our mind is, is God trustworthy? Can I rely upon Him to do what He says to do? 
When you are in the midst of crisis, when the circumstances around you seem horrible, when you're overwhelmed by the pressures of your job, financial pressures of paying the bills, uh, whatever those pressures may be, whatever the adversity may be, whether you are under attack from other people, whether it's just various forms of system testing, whatever it may be, what you and I have to learn to work through is how do we take these promises and so utilize them in terms of our mental attitude dynamic that we are able to find stability and calm in the midst of the crisis. Sometimes that happens fairly easily. Other times it's a moment-by-moment battle as we constantly wrestle with those promises and the circumstances seem so overwhelming. The situation seems so devastating. It seems like it'll never change and we, we can sometimes become very negative that things just don't seem to change. Where is God? Why, why did He let this happen to me? People start asking those questions. And as soon as you hear yourself say, how can God let this happen to me? Where, where is He? You are in serious trouble spiritually. You're asking the wrong question. Now, we all get there at times. But as soon as you start asking the question, you've assumed that God is not in control. God's not capable. God in His sovereignty isn't overseeing the circumstances of your own life. And that's why you, it's, it's like a- answering the question, um, have you quit beating your wife yet? However you answer that question, you're going to get in trouble. A friend of mine came up with another one the other day. He said, just ask somebody if they're still a homosexual. However you answer the question, you're in trouble. You start answering, you start asking certain questions, it will predispose you down a certain path of reasoning. And you just get more and more enmeshed in self-pity. You get more and more enmeshed in uh, focusing on yourself. And the arrogant skills start taking over. And the next thing you know, you're just in a, in a spiritual spiral uh, to be destroyed. We have to focus on the God who is behind the promise. Is He really trustworthy? Now, the issue in the faith rest drill is always the character of God. It's always the essence of God. Is He reliable? So when we start functioning in this area, we need to think our way through the attributes of God. Years ago, I noticed that when you get into the Psalms, And there's a whole class of psalms that are technically called lament psalms. And a lament psalm is simply a psalm that was written by usually David, but some others as well, in the midst of some crisis. And he's crying out to God in a lament. He's lamenting his circumstances, his situation. My enemies surround me. Look at the the unrighteous. They prosper. How How do the wicked prosper, Lord? He starts off with a complaint, and then he moves through a series of reasonings and concludes with a confidence in God. But what happens in that movement? And you'll see it again and again and again and again in the Psalms. He starts focusing on the character of God. And that's often what we need to do in the midst of a crisis is just pull ourselves up short and start thinking in terms of the essence of God, that God is sovereign. What does that mean when I'm facing a problem? God is sovereign. That means God rules the creation. doesn't mean he overrides people's individual volition, but it means that God rules the creation. That means that God has oversight over the circumstances and situations and people that come into my life. Not so that I blame God for the problems, the suffering that's there, but realizing that God has designed things in such a way as to bring that to bear in my life so that I can learn to trust Him in areas where I'm weak. See, that's what God tends to do is bring these circumstances into our life because that's where we're Weak. That's where we have a problem. You look at some other believer and you say, well, they don't go through this. Well, that's because it's not a problem for them. But it's a problem for you. And so that's the area where God tests you. But you've got other areas where it wouldn't be a difficult thing at all to trust God. And yet the other person goes through that test. So 
Every one of us is different. God specifically designs these tests for us. Second, we think of God as being righteous. That means that God is always going to do the right thing. We'll see a verse on that in just a minute. He is absolute justice so that ultimately there will be a resolution of the problem. If you are dealt with unfairly, unjustly, and we all live in the cosmic system, we're all victims. You don't need to get involved in psychotherapy to figure out if you're a victim or not. We're all victims. Adam ate the fruit. You got victimized. Get over it. We're all victims, and God is going to resolve the problem of evil. Eventually, there will be justice. The psalmist said in one of the psalms, he's getting his eyes on the unrighteous, and he almost stumbled, but then he remembered the justice of God. God is love. Now, this doesn't mean he's an emotional, sentimental, warm, fuzzy uh, being up there who just wants to wrap his arms around you and, and talk about how much he loves you. The word that is usually used for God's love in the Psalms is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed has the idea of faithful, loyal love, loyalty to a covenant or a contract. And so when we go through the Scriptures, we see that God always structures his relationships with man in terms of a contract. That becomes the ultimate model for marriage. And if you notice in the Scriptures, there are two different Hebrew words for love. There's the word ahav, which usually refers to the kind of love of a little more romantic uh, sentimental type, but the post-wedding love is chesed. It's loyalty to a contract. That's what marriage is. Just to boil it all down, get rid of all the superficial romance, marriage is a contract, a contract sworn to before God. And f- love, post-marriage love, is loyalty or faithfulness to that contract. And God has always had contracts. You have the Edenic covenant or the creation covenant, then the Adamic covenant. And following the Adamic covenant, you have the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. All of these structure God's relationship. Now, some, you'll always hear somebody, usually a charismatic, come along and say, well, you're just putting God in a box. Oh, that used to just really chat me. You're putting God in a box. No, God is the one who defines who He is and what He does and how He operates. If God has limits, they are self-imposed limits. He describes how He is going to operate in certain dispensations. God is not going to always do things the same way. In fact, what they've done is put God in a box by saying God always operates the same way that he can do whatever he wants to whenever he wants to do it. And they completely miss this whole idea. But when we talk about the love of God, that means God is going to be loyal to his word, loyal to his covenant, loyal to his promises. He's not going to go back on them. That is tremendous comfort in the midst of the vagaries of life. That God doesn't change. We'll get into that with immutability, but His love uh, focuses on that steadfast loyalty, and you find it again and again in the Psalms. Usually it's translated loving kindness, and it's the idea of loyal covenant love. He's eternal life. That means that He has no beginning and no end. There are no surprises. God's uh, infinite with respect to time. He's omniscient, which means He knows every detail, and has always known every detail. God doesn't acquire knowledge, so He's not surprised when you're surprised. He's not shocked when you're shocked. He's not overwhelmed when you're overwhelmed. He has known about this for all of eternity. So we can just relax, because if God has known about it through all of eternity, and He is a God of love, then He is a God who has faithfully provided everything we need to handle the problem. He's omnipresent. That means that He is just as present with me today as He was at some time in the past when I thought God was very present. And because my circumstances are horrible today, it doesn't mean that God is any more distant from me. Sometimes people get the idea that, that, 
oh, life is so horrible. I'm going through all this test. God must be involved in Iraq or he's over in Afghanistan, but he's forgotten about me. In his omnipresence, God is equally present to every part of his creation at the same time. He is equally present to every part of his creation at every instant. He is fully with me as much as he is fully with you and all of who he is. He is omnipotent. That means he's greater than any problem, any difficulty that I can ever face. You take the Omni brothers here and you add them up and put them together. When you hit a crisis, then there's no reason for panic. There's no reason to get upset. You just relax and realize God is completely and totally in control, even though everything around me is just flying apart. Then he's veracity, he's truth. He is absolute truth. He never utters anything that is less than truth. He is the, he is the epitome of truth. And he's immutable. He never, never changes. So this is the essence of God. Just work your way through that sometime. And when you get through going through these ten attributes and applying those to your problem, if you're still rattling because of the circumstances, then start over. It's the doctrine that will stabilize you. Now, when we look at the essence of God, we want to isolate four of them. His righteousness, His justice, and His love. Righteousness and justice are two sides of the same coin. Both of these words, whether you're talking about Hebrew or Greek, translate the same root words. In the Hebrew, it's sadiq. In the Greek, it's dikaiosune. And it depends on the orientation of the word and the context. Righteousness has to do with the standard of his character. And justice has to do with the application of that standard. And that standard is always done in a way that is consistent with his contracts, with his statements. That's the love aspect. So we can take, out, take this out, and this is my definition of the integrity of God. It focuses on the righteousness of God, which is the standard of his character, the justice of God, which is the application of that standard, the love of God, which is the consistent application of that standard in light of his promises, and truth. This is the foundation for God. Now, the reason I link these together is because the Scripture links these attributes of God together. You don't just come along and say, hmm, What's integrity? Let's go to Webster's Dictionary and define integrity. And then build out a theology based on a philosophical understanding of integrity. See, this is the problem that you run into time and time again. In fact, uh, Tommy Ice and I were talking this afternoon, and he's, he says, you know, the problem I have whenever I debate, debate people who come out of a Reformed background, is that you can start with exegesis and you can talk about what the text says, and as soon as you get through, their questions all come from this abstract philosophical theological framework. Well, that doesn't seem to fit my theology. We're not talking about theology. We're talking about what the text says. Let the text shape your theology, not the other way around. So we come to verses in the Psalms, such as Psalm 97.2. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What is the foundation? What gives stability to the throne of God? And the throne there stands for uh, his presence, but all that flows from it. And then Psalm 85, uh, verse 10. Mercy and truth. Mercy is grace and action. Mercy and truth have met together. See this connection between grace and truth. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Notice the attributes that tend to get linked together by the psalmist. And then Psalm 89:14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy, actually it's love in the... This is from the New King James. It is chesed in the, in the Hebrew. Love and truth... Go before your face. Notice how the psalmist links these four attributes of God together. This is the foundation of his promises. It's his righteousness and his justice, his love and his truth. These four elements. When we come to grips with God's integrity, 
we come to a realization of a truth that Abram is not going to articulate until we get into the 18th chapter. But in Genesis 18.25, at the end of a long verse, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? See, that's that, that truth that we grasp in the midst of crisis. We think it's somehow the cosmic system is unfair. We're, we're, we're beaten and knocked around by uh, circumstances, by uh, economic trends, by history, by events far beyond our control, and we just think, you know, it's just horrible. Well, I think it's right to think it's horrible sometimes. We are living in the cosmic system. It is horrible. When Jesus looked on the crowds, when Lazarus was dead in the grave, we're told that Jesus wept. Now, Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus was in the grave. Jesus knew that in three minutes he was going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus was going to come out. Jesus' weeping had nothing to do with Lazarus' death. If you look at the verse right before that, it says, Jesus looked on the crowds. Who were the crowds? These were the mourners. These were the people who were suffering the pains of loss and grief because their dear friend and relative was now dead. And Jesus had genuine, true compassion on the crowds because they're suffering, living in a fallen world, living in a world where, there's, where there is pain and misery and heartache. And Jesus had compassion on them because man was not originally created to suffer. He was created to have perfect fellowship with God. It's only because of Adam's sin, that it, which introduced sin into the race, changed the whole uh, nature of reality and began the cosmic system, that there's, that there's misery on the earth. So it's right for us at one level to recognize that, that life is pretty miserable sometimes because we're living in the cosmic system. But don't stop there. If you stop there, you're just going to go right into to, uh, self-absorption and, and self-indulgence and a lot of uh, self-pity. You move past it and recognize that ultimately there's resolution as Abram articulates here, that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. So this is the root of utilizing the faith rest drill. And Abraham is beginning to recognize and to grasp this principle of God's integrity here. God's made a promise. He's promised him that that he will give him the land. And after he tries to solve problems on his own by heading off to Egypt and just creating more problems, Abram comes back and it begins to dawn on him, begins to get into his head that maybe God means what he says. Maybe he's not like all these other pagan gods that I've been exposed to that can't control things. Maybe even in the midst of, of life when things look out of control, when there's a famine, when the weather's going crazy and there's no rain, there's no crops, there's no food, and I'm responsible for all these people... Maybe God is still in control, even though things appear to be out of control for me. And so Abram is beginning to wrap his thinking around the integrity of God, and so he is willing to trust in the integrity of God and thus trust in God's promise, even in the midst of this personnel problem that he's encountering. And because his focus is on God and the integrity of God... Abraham is in a position of strength. And from that position of strength, he can then turn to Lot and he can utilize grace in the way he deals with Lot. Even though, who knows how much of this problem was aggravated by Lot. Uh, This would have gone on for some time. The Scripture just tends to move very quickly through this problem. But this took some time to develop. You don't develop these kinds of... uh, uh, internecine struggles simply from one week to the next. It took some time, and there's some difficulties there. And there were hurt feelings uh, on one side and hurt feelings on the other, and you'd have charges and countercharges. And we've all been through situations like that when people have accused us of one thing and it's not true, or we hear that people are saying uh, something else about us and that's not true, and we understand there's gossip and maligning that's going on. And it hurts. And all this is happening, and yet Abram 
relaxes, it's a key part of this, he's able to relax because he's trusting in the integrity of God. Because he's relaxed and he's not trying to keep the land for himself because he recognizes that's not his job, that's God's job. God is the one who has promised him the land. He can relax in that position of strength and be generous and gracious to Lot. If we're not rooted and grounded in the Word, walking by means of the Spirit, you can't be generous to people. You're not going to, it's not going to come out of you because you're too busy thinking in terms of self and trying to hold on to things. It's only when we're focused on who God is and what He's provided for us that we're in that position of strength where we can then uh, truly behave generously and graciously to people. So this moves us to the next problem-solving device that's being used here, and that's grace orientation. This is Grace is not simply something we receive from God, but grace is also a means of spiritual growth. 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, Paul writes, be strong, and it is a dative of means. It should be translated, be strong by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is grace, an understanding of grace, that gives us strength in the midst of crisis. Another verse, 2 Peter 3.18, familiar to most of you, grow, and again, it's an instrumental dative. Grow by means of the grace and by means of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace is a means of spiritual growth. What does that mean? It means that when we are facing certain problems, certain adversities, or, or maybe it has to do with prosperity, that's the situation here. Remember, this whole thing grows out of, out of Abram's prosperity. It's because he's prosperous and because Lot is prosperous that they're having this problem. See, prosperity isn't all it's cracked up to be. We are to grow by means of grace. So we have to utilize grace to solve the problem and solve the situation. So I got to thinking about this. I said, how in the world do we utilize grace to solve a problem? And I'm thinking back in terms of the basic dynamics of the problem-solving devices and the stress busters. Now, let me sort of orient you. When we grow as a believer, there is a sense in which our, our soul is edified or strengthened. And there are certain things that strengthen it. We just said, saw that, that Paul told Timothy to be strong in the grace of the Lord. So as we do exercise these problem-solving devices, they strengthen us. And there are certain of these, and I'm going to call them all spiritual skills, that we utilize in spiritual infancy that are the foundation for everything else. And the two that are most foundational are confession of sin, because that gets us back in fellowship, and then the filling by means of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit. That's the mechanic for the spiritual life. It's not enough, it's not enough to simply be born again. When I was in Kiev the last uh, couple of weeks, I had my, my iPod with me and I had loaded onto it, I think it's about 16 lectures that were given by uh, Dr. Chafer his last year that he taught at Dallas Seminary back in 1952, just before his death. And I had listened to these years and years ago. I used to have them on, a, on a, a, an old reel, reel-to-reel recorders. You all remember those? And uh, so I hadn't listened to these in a while. And since I was teaching spiritual life, uh, to the students at Jim's school over there, I thought, well, I'll just take my iPod then when I'm walking back and forth every day from, from uh, the apartment over to, to the school, I'll just listen to, to Dr. Chafer teach on the spiritual life. And that was uh, just tremendous. And he just had some real gems. And one of the statements he made, which just crystallized something for me, uh, not that I hadn't said something similar or understood it before, but, you know, sometimes somebody will say something in one sentence that just crystallizes it. He says, fellas, he always called them fellas and boys. When I went to seminary, we'd grown up, we'd become men. But back in, back in the 50s, under Chafer, they were fellas and boys. And he'd say, fellas, most people think it's enough to live the Christian life if you're just regenerated. But just being born again isn't enough. 
You have to walk by the Holy Spirit. And see, that's the problem with almost every system of sanctification out there, whether it's Lutheran, Roman Catholic, uh, Holiness, Pentecostal, whatever it is. All these different systems of sanctification. It's only within dispensational sanctification that you have the right place of the Holy Spirit and the unique place of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life. We have to walk by the Holy Spirit. And that takes practice. It's a skill. Uh, Faith rest drill, which we talked about. Then we have grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Those are foundational. Now, we don't learn things in that order, but conceptually and logically, that's the foundation. Then our adolescent stage relates to our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We begin to live in light of, of the next day and the next day maybe eternity. You know how it is if you've ever raised a teenager that all they can think about is tonight or tomorrow. Maybe. Usually it's just whatever is going to happen in the next minute. But as they mature, they begin to realize that they have to postpone gratification and they have to make decisions in light of how it's going to affect uh, things next semester or next year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Now, that's real maturity. Same thing in the spiritual life. We begin to realize that God has a plan for us that goes beyond this life into the millennial kingdom and to eternity. And so we have to develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny and recognize that the decisions we make today will affect our uh, who we are and what we do in eternity. Then as we move into spiritual adulthood, we master those three skills related to love, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ, what I call the, uh, the love triad. And then we have uh, inner happiness. Now, that's a foundation, and we're already about out of time. What we have to do is recognize that at that basic level, we have to master those skills. And we have our basic skills here. And I'm going to take out these three, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. It's not one, then the other, then the other. They interrelate. They're interdependent. As you begin to trust God, you begin to understand things about grace. As you study His Word, you learn more about grace. You study His Word, you orient to the doctrine that's there, which gives you a greater understanding of grace. As you learn more doctrine, you have something else to put your faith in. So they work together. They are uh, interdependent. And this is what we see with, with uh, Abram. As he is trusting God with the faith rest drill, he now is able to exercise grace towards Lot. And as he exercises grace towards Lot, there are certain things that are taking place, certain elements that are part of grace orientation. And as much as I hate to do this, we're going to have to stop here because our time's about up and it's going to take me a while to go through the next slide where we look at the different elements in grace orientation, different elements in grace orientation and how grace orientation, how you can use grace orientation to uh, take control of any situation and circumstance. What are the different elements, the different dynamics that are part of grace orientation? It's not just enough to recognize that we're saved by grace. It's not just enough to realize that all that we have is a result of grace. But grace is something that you utilize, you grow by means of this grace, and you utilize in terms of solving a problem. Usually I find that these are problems with people. And as we come to understand how grace orientation works as a mechanic in spiritual growth, it becomes foundational for developing a capacity for impersonal love. You cannot have impersonal love. You cannot fulfill the mandate that Jesus gave in John 13, 34 and 35, to love one another as I have loved you if you don't understand grace. Grace is the foundation for love. If you can't understand that it's not you know, in, in salvation, for God so loved the world, but it's by grace that you are saved. They work together. 
And grace is the application of, of love to people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it, who don't merit it. Grace is love in action. You see, grace is not an attribute of God because it's not eternal. Love is eternal. But grace is always defined as unearned favor or undeserved merit. It has to do with with the application of God's favor towards people, creatures who don't deserve it. And this is bounded in time between the fall of Adam and the destruction of the new heavens and the new earth and the great white throne judgment. After that, we're all going to be perfect. There will be no sin, no fallen creatures. There will be no grace in eternity. There was no grace before... Lucifer fell. There was no, there will be no grace after the, in the new heavens and the new earth. Because grace is oriented to undeserving creatures, those that are not perfectly righteous. So grace is one of those things that operate only in time. So we'll come back next time and start taking grace apart and trying to understand how we use grace to deal with problems, especially problems related to people. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be refreshed by it, to come to a greater understanding of how to use the faith rest drill, to trust you, and also to utilize grace in the way we interact with other fallen creatures. Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.